As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, As ever, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm here with my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, John. Hi, it's good to be here. So it's quite unusual because whereas we normally record this podcast from two separate locations, uh, today we're in the same room staring at the same microphone. So it's a new experience for both of us. I'm not sure I like it all that much. <laughs> uh, before before we get stuck into today's topic, which is going to be slightly different as well, um, I want to give a bit of a health warning because uh, what we're going to talk about today is the question of suffering. Um, and I guess a kind of Christians understanding and responses to suffering but we want to just state right up front that there will be lots of people listening um, who might be experiencing some form of suffering or loss at this moment or or, or in the recent past and, and we want to be really aware that this is a very sensitive topic and we want to be understanding as it touches many of those who will be listening. Yes and of course it's something that's very close to home uh, for many people who work in the health professions myself included and uh, really until I started working as a doctor, I'd had very little personal experience of coming across or uh, being confronted by really tragic events and so on. And yet, in my experience of a doctor, and then particularly as a paediatrician, caring for many, many babies who were critically injured, some with brain damage, and some who were dying, um, uh, I knew that the, these, this was a reality for people. And, and, and one of the things, of course, you learn as a doctor is that uh, suffering and evil isn't distributed in a very uh, even way across the human race. Mm. Some some people seem to live lives which are barely touched by disaster, and, and other people and families seem to have a, a terrible litany of repeated and inexplicable agony and pain. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I've been fortunate in my life to to not have experienced any real major periods of kind of loss, suffering, pain, uh, disaster. Um, maybe my time is yet to come. But I guess as a, as a doctor, as you say, it must it can never be kind of far from your mind, working uh, with critically ill babies and, and, and kind of wrestling with what does that mean as a Christian, as a doctor, to be surrounded by all this loss and pain. And I think one of the things I've observed, and and that is that some uh, medical students who've you know, come from strong Christian backgrounds and um, they've inherited uh, somewhat simplistic ideas about loss and suffering and, and basically if you trust God and you have faith then, then your life 
will go well and uh, and then once they start working as a doctor they're confronted by these inexplicable evil and tragedy which afflicts some people's lives and and it often seems then as though that slightly simplistic um, theology that they learnt uh, from, maybe from their home church or as a student doesn't really seem to work in the real world and I think I have observed some people who've, who've walked away from Christian faith because they, they've they come to the conclusion that it, it just doesn't really work when confronted with the the mess of suffering which which we see in so many lives. I think a lot of Christians when they first start to think about this problem their kind of initial response is to say well you know God made everything without suffering and pain and bleeding and dying and death as we read in Genesis and then the fall happened and humans are responsible for this broken world we live in and then the end of the story is that God will revert back to that kind of prelapsarian bliss that we were always supposed to have. Is that your theology of suffering? Well, no, it isn't. And it, that sort of simplistic uh, understanding that that uh, suffering is simply a consequence of the fall, I, I think really doesn't hold up. And, and I think one of the first things to think about is just the nature of the creation, and in particular, the nature of, of what it means to be human. And the extraordinary thing about the biblical understanding of what it means to be human is that we are created um, to be made out of dust. We're, we're made out of dust. We're made out of the same stuff as the rest of the earth. I mean, in our very name, uh, the first humans were called Adam uh, for the human, uh, which is taken from the Hebrew Adama, which is the ground. So. In, right from the beginning, human beings are seen as physical, dependent, frail and, and vulnerable. And, and so this idea that the world was created good, but it was also created profoundly fragile and, and therefore the potential for brokenness, it's, it seems to be woven into the very fabric of the creation and into the fabric of what it means to be human. Isn't that a challenge to our idea of the nature of God, though? Because I've often heard it said, you know, God only makes good things. And, and if God, who does not have fragility and brokenness kind of woven into him, if he was creating a universe as an overflow of his very being, wouldn't it? doesn't it make more sense that it would be made whole and perfect rather than, as you described, fragile and earthy? Well, and I think this is part of the mystery, isn't it? But, but a theme which you find throughout the whole scripture is, who do you think you are to question me, as God says, about the way I've made the universe? I mean, it, that's, that's a question which is above our pay grade. What, why God chose to make us so fragile and vulnerable and, and broken is ultimately a matter for speculation. Although I do think, you know, Christian teaching has many hints about that, doesn't it? About how... God's power revealed in weakness is is a is a constant theme, isn't it, in the scriptures? Yeah, absolutely. And this is reminding me of another podcast I listened to a while ago, actually, from another podcast that recommend the Bible Project, where they were talking about the theme of trees of all things throughout the Bible. And they started with an episode about how in Genesis humans are often likened to trees, and one of the way that is is that uh, trees don't kind of exist independently, but they need to be rooted into the earth to survive. And in the same way, humans even before the fall and before sin needed to be rooted into the life of the triune God 
if they were to live forever. And, and immortality is not something that we own as a property in ourselves, but it is an ongoing gift from God. And that's true of kind of eternalness, but I think it's probably also true, as we're talking about, of our kind of non-fragility or our, our, or our lack of suffering. Um, and related to that is, a, is an issue which I've often discussed and, and I, I've been challenged by when I've spoken on these issues, and that is people say, well, God created a perfect world and, and therefore uh, it, it, it doesn't, dependence and vulnerability m- must be not part of the original creation because God created a perfect world. But it's interesting that that concept of perfection is not really there in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and in fact, when you think about what is your understanding of a perfect world, Perfection is really a mathematical concept. You can talk about a perfect circle or a perfectly straight line or something, but to talk about a perfect world doesn't really make sense. And certainly, I don't think the biblical authors thought like that. What it does say is that what God created was good, and indeed very good at the end of creation. God pronounces, at the end of the creation narrative, God pronounces the creation very good. But I've heard it said that the Hebrew word for good really doesn't mean perfect it it means fit for purpose that that God has made a creation which is fit for his purposes Uh, that doesn't mean that it's perfect in some mathematical way so you're arguing or suggesting that contrary to kind of a lot of our Sunday school teaching it's not simply that um, all kind of brokenness and fragility and hurt that is a consequence of that that we experience is directly correlated to the fall and the kind of entry of sin into into creation no and that if you think about it we come into this world utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others utterly fragile utterly vulnerable we go through this phase of our life when other people depend on us and and then uh, most of us are going to end our lives utterly dependent and fragile and vulnerable. And I don't think the scriptures teach that's a consequence of the fall. In fact, I think it is part of our very created humanity. Dependence is, is part of our creaturely nature. And, and I think, you know, it, when I'm challenged about that, and I have been quite frequently challenged about that, that statement... I would say, well, look at Jesus. Jesus, the Bible says, is is a perfectly unfallen human being. And yet Jesus himself is utterly dependent and totally dependent on the love and care of his parents. And uh, as, as a baby, he needs to be fed. He needs to be washed. He needs to have his bottom wiped. Um, and at the end of his life on earth, uh, on the cross, Jesus is again utterly and totally dependent and, and through his parched lips he croaks, I am thirsty. And yet, the Bible teaches us, he wasn't fallen. So so if we see in Jesus the nature of what humanity was intended to be, we see a dependence. And we also kind of told throughout the New Testament that it was on the cross that we see the most perfect picture of who God is, triune, as well as the Son. And... And that tells us, therefore, that God himself suffers and that it's the kind of the, the height of the glory of God on the cross was also this image of brokenness, as you say. And so there is something about if we are to be made in the image of a God who suffers, must we also suffer? And God isn't affected by 
the fall. He's obviously outside of his creation, and yet he still somehow experiences pain and loss. Yes, and, and these are deep uh, waters, aren't they? And I, I know that there is a sort of ongoing controversy between theologians, including biblical theologians, about to what it means to say that God is a suffering God. And, and certainly the traditional understanding of, of theism was that uh, the divine nature was was incapable of suffering and that therefore suffering in as much as Jesus suffers is only suffering within his human nature. But then I know there are other theologians who challenge that and who who say that actually the the biblical picture is of a God who enters into suffering. And, and perhaps that's something we'll come back to. Um, but I, I, I think it is interesting, isn't it, that, that Christianity puts the cross at the, as the heart of its uh, the heart of its understanding, as the symbol of this faith. Mm. And it it is remarkable that a that a a symbol of execution, of torture, of, of a barbaric um, human way of inflicting suffering on another human being. It, it's remarkable that that instrument of execution becomes the symbol of our faith. Definitely, definitely. And something easily overlooked, I think, kind of swimming in the waters of Christendom or post-Christendom that we are. I think it's often that case that a lot of Christians, I mean, I certainly did come across this what's often called the problem of suffering as like one of a set of discrete kind of apologetics challenges to faith that in the narrative I was coming kind of grew out of the enlightenment and early kind of secularism or proto-secularism and you talk about people like Hume and and Kant and Nietzsche and these kind of 1700, 1800, 19th century, uh, 20th century figures who are starting to probe and challenge Christianity and one of the arguments they use is you know the kind of supposed paradox that an all-powerful all-loving God yet there is suffering but what we're saying is actually this suffering is not a new problem, if it's even a problem at all. It's it's written into the faith itself for 2,000 and plus years. Yes, and so the question of how you address this issue, this, this human reality, and of course at one level every human life is going to be affected by suffering, and it may be that somebody listening to this so far, your life has been relatively uncomplicated, like as you say, Tim, and yet... The, the sad truth is at some point in your life it is extremely likely that you will be confronted with some inexplicable uh, and, and and extremely painful uh, form of suffering and and the question is then how do we address this issue and it, it's interesting that in the eastern religions the Asian eastern religions Hinduism Buddhism and so on the fundamental idea seems to be that that suffering is in fact an illusion that that the only the way ultimately of coming to terms with suffering is to say that it it doesn't have reality it's simply an illusion and what we have to do is somehow transcend the illusion mm -hmm. to understand that it isn't real and this is the way of uh, addressing the nature of suffering yeah and that I mean, I've always struggled with the idea that somehow we can kind of meditate our way above the pain and 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 kind of transcend and by by force of kind of stillness or something center ourselves so much so that we no longer notice. And even if that was achievable, which, I, which I'm pretty skeptical, is that even desirable? The idea that what we want to do is create this kind of super cast of people who are so holy they kind of float 
on a six inch crowd of kind of smug self-knowing and they don't actually aren't affected and buffeted by the waves that ordinary human beings go through. Well, I think that's right. And it, I remember traveling in uh, Sri Lanka, which is uh, a predominantly Buddhist country. And you, everywhere you go, you see symbols of the of the Buddha in contemplation with this slightly seraphic smile uh, on his face. So whatever evils, tragedies, uh, deprivation, abuse, horrors are going on in everyday life, uh, there is this image of the Buddha who, who is able to contemplate beyond uh, and, and see the, the illusory nature of suffering. And I, th- I think in contrast, Christianity takes suffering desperately seriously. It's, mm. it's, it's seen as, as a profoundly important and, and, and even threatening reality which we have to come to terms with. to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. So we're saying that some kind of ancient uh, other faith kind of perspectives are about seeing suffering as an illusion to be transcended. Uh, moderns, as we discussed briefly, kind of see it as an intellectual, theological, apologetic kind of problem to be solved. And I think we often see that that it drives forward a lot of kind of technological progress and is, is the idea that there are like issues and problems and heartbreaks and pains and disasters. And we just need to work harder, do more science, invent more stuff, develop ourselves as a species and we can kind of come out of that. Neither of those seem a particularly Christian approach. What would a Christian kind of dwelling with suffering look like? Well, on the one hand, of course, uh, you know, as a health professional, we're called to try to uh, minimise and reduce unnecessary pain and and suffering and so on. And therefore, in one element, yes, we do see suffering as a problem. But ultimately, uh, we recognise that, um, particularly towards the end of life with people doing terminal care, that uh, that suffering is a reality. And... uh, a statement um, saying which I found extremely helpful and which was I found in a document written by palliative care uh, department said that suffering is not a question which demands an answer it's not a problem which demands a solution it's a mystery which demands a presence and I think that idea that rather than try and find some explanation we should recognize that suffering ultimately is a mystery it's a mystery why this particular person has this particular tragedy or why this particular event has happened to me. Mm. Uh, I, I don't need to look for some kind of explanation. I can't look out for some explanation. But what we're called to do is to be there with the suffering one. Suffering is a call to the rest of us. It's an appeal to the rest of us to be there with those who are suffering. Is that in some way a kind of quite beautiful but a convenient kind of get out clause for Christianity that's almost like ducking the question put up by some of those kind of modern challenges and saying oh don't really have a pat answer for your kind of issue about problem of suffering so we're going to kind of replace it with bromides around presence and meaningfulness and kind of like weasel out of it that way how would you respond to people who who would see it as a bit of a ducking the issue well 
certainly that is one of the accusations which has always been put at Christianity that that it's a kind of masochism a, a, mm. a kind of passivity that it that instead of um, saying look we've got to we've got to solve this we've got to uh, get rid of this problem that that Christianity uh, leads to um, a fatalistic and, and and slightly masochistic acceptance of suffering but I, I I would push back and say I I think that in my experience this is far from it being a way of ducking the problem it's it's a calling which is a much harder calling I mean one of the fascinating things in in what happens in medicine is that there's a natural tendency for doctors and health professionals to want to spend the most of the time with the patients who are getting better hmm. um, and and a, uh, we we really enjoy spending time with our patients who are are getting better and there's a conversely there's a natural tendency when we are confronted by patients who for whom we can do nothing and who are deteriorating and clearly dying our natural tendency is to move on rapidly uh, because it's so uncomfortable uh, and one of the things I learned as a doctor was that that was I had to reverse that mm. you know actually we don't need to spend time with the patients who are getting better they're getting better without us uh, the people who really need us are the people for whom medically we don't have anything to offer and and so I tried to make it a practice of spending my time as much as possible with the babies who were severely brain damaged or, or and with parents who were struggling with the impact of a terminal illness that their child had and so on because I didn't have anything medically to offer but just by being there I discovered I could I could make a difference but but it even though it was sometimes quite quite painful and demanding to to spend time to be the presence. Mm. And I think that leads on to talking about this idea that's kind of the fancy theological term would be an over-realized eschatology and how some Christians try and resolve this issue by by saying, well, no, we can actually overcome suffering, not by technological might or by education and progress, but by the supernatural intervention of God. And therefore, and, 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 you know, some have gone as far to say, you know, that God's will is not that anyone should suffer. And therefore, if people are, it's because they don't have enough faith, they're not praying enough, they haven't done the right kind of liturgy or service, or they're, 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 they're being punished for sins. And there's a kind of sense in which suffering is not a mystery, suffering is a, is a theological crisis, and it needs a theological solution through the kind of interventionist power of a miraculous healing God. Yes, and unfortunately, you know, I have come across a number of times when um, a Christian uh, who is suffering, maybe with a, a terminal illness or some other very major illness, and they are being told constantly, just have faith and claim your healing, and and um, and they feel this implicit criticism is that the fact that they're not being healed is is evidence that. Uh, they haven't got enough faith or there's some hidden sin that hasn't been acknowledged uh, or some other barrier to God's working in their life and and so it's almost that they they try to persuade themselves they are being healed they don't want to talk about the possibility that they might die and, and it seems as though that that kind of 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 Christian faith which which I believe is mistaken 
is, is actually a kind of barrier to uh, really full acceptance and being able to be honest and truthful about their their uh, their current condition and there's even been some fascinating studies done of i think particularly in the united states of of christians who are um terminally ill and how contrary to what people might expect uh the christians are more likely than their other kind of fellow patients to request what ultimately is futile treatment and kind of to desperately to extend their life at all costs um which for me is kind of a tragedy Yes, and it, it is, unfortunately, um, there is evidence of that, certainly in the States and elsewhere. That, um, And it, it's interesting that when people are asked about this by the researchers, why was it that even though you have faith in God, you're insisting on having uh, every possible medical treatment, uh, there seem to be two fundamental answers. Number one, well you have to have every possible treatment because otherwise that's like euthanasia and euthanasia is wrong. So whenever even whenever there's any possible treatment, you must have it, which is a kind of vitalism. Or else, um, well, I'm trusting God to do a miracle, but if I wasn't to accept treatment, then that would be lack of faith. So I've, I've got to have the treatment and be admitted to the intensive care unit in order to give God the best chance of doing his miracle and obviously both of those seem pretty pretty uh, poor reasons for uh, the end result which is often that people do have unnecessary medical interventions and suffering uh, at the end of life. Mm. So we've been kind of thinking about this question about whether Christianity is masochistic and and that kind of fa famous critique by by the philosopher Nietzsche, who kind of derided Christianity as a kind of religion for slaves and weaklings, and 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 you know, and I guess my initial response is that you, there's you know there's degrees of truth as we've been saying. Suffering is something not to be overcome, but to be endured at certain seasons. But ultimate, this, ultimately, this is a time limited process, and that God is going to vanquish suffering and pain and death entirely one day, one day soon. We pray and. And so we're not simply kind of quiet, you know, some people like the fair heresy of quietism where you just kind of sit there and immune yourself from the rest of the world. Actually, what we're saying is that there is a there is an age, a last age that we're in now where suffering is baked into our existence. And it, it appears not something that God intends to eradicate through a series of miraculous interventions, though, of course, that does happen from time to time. But really, it's about saying that we're waiting until God does in the second coming. Well, yes, and therefore we shouldn't expect uh, necessarily God to abolish suffering in our own lives or in the lives of others. Um, and, and in fact, there's this deeper, wonderful idea that God himself has entered into the experience of suffering and taken it into his own, into his own body so that the implications of, of, of the cross um, of, of God revealed as, as, as a God who takes suffering into his own being. Uh, he doesn't, God has refused to hold himself aloof from violence and suffering, but he, he in some sense, absorbs it into his very being. And, and so the, the picture of divine love, which we, which we see in the cross, is, is an extraordinary thing, because on the one hand, it, it's immensely powerful, and it's a, this God's power which can obliterate death and bring 
life and healing and yet there's a fragility about um, God's the divine love and and it, so that it's it almost seems that that genuine love does require the vulnerability to open ourselves to an open to the other and therefore divine love is both powerful but also vulnerable mm. and so let's move on just as we come to the close to talk a bit more about how the the cross will ultimately redeem this um suffering and evil that we've been talking about i mean there's a famous verse you sent me before when we're preparing for this from revelation 13 that says this um all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Why is that so important to you? Well, the way that I was taught as a, um, both at Sunday school and, and also as a student was a sort of a, a history of the world that God creates this wonderful world, it's all perfect. He then, uh, it all goes wrong. Uh, and then God has a rescue plan and uh, his rescue plan involves sending his son and his son dies and is raised and so, and then god restores uh, the world to to its unfallen state but actually there are hints in the scriptures which point to a much more complex and nuanced story and several times it talks about the the book the lamb's book of life which is before the foundation of the world and yet, if you think about it, that lamb is, is a paschal lamb. It's the, it's the Easter lamb. So the story of Easter was there before the foundation of the world. And I've heard people suggest that in, in some sense, the creation is not the beginning of the story. There is, there is a story that happens before creation. And, and perhaps that story is the story of the cross. Uh, the, the, a story of inexplicable evil, which is then... Uh, penetrated by God's love and power and transformed into blessing and healing and that's the story of the cross and that comes before creation and then the entire cosmos is a, is a kind of theatre which has been created in order that this wonderful story of redemption can work its way out through history. So it's not in the sense that God's plan wasn't to create this paradise humans ruined it and so God had to go to plan B which involves sending his son to die for our sins and rise again and ultimately return a second time to lead us all into glory where we'll be given resurrection bodies and live in eternity and complete the cycle it's that it was always plan A because the lamb was always slain before the fall before Adam and Eve before the serpent before the tree the lamb was already and already slain how does that change our kind of understanding or how we respond to suffering knowing that truth well, I think it, it makes us focus on this idea that, re, that the story of redemption is actually written into the fabric of creation. It is interesting, isn't it, that the dying and rising, the seed falling, uh, winter and spring, you know, wherever we look in the natural creation, we see images of redemption. We see images of, of evil being overcome and death being overcome by life, evil being overcome by good and so on and so I think this idea that actually that's not a surprise the cosmos if the cosmos is a theatre for the drama of redemption we shouldn't be surprised that we find this story of redemption everywhere we look and and also it suggests that that yes there is the central uh, 
point of history, which is the incarnation, cross and resurrection, which is where the focal point of redemption. But I also think that God's plan is to write the same story in some sense into our own lives. And so our lives become a kind of cameo, a kind of a small story which reflects the big story so that we meet inexplicable loss, suffering and, uh, and pain. But in God's grace and by his power, these things can be redeemed and transformed. So my little story then becomes a cameo of the big story. And I, I personally find this a way of, of helping, of finding some kind of meaning in inexplicable and tragic events which have happened in my life and which I have seen in many other lives. And so as we come into land then, what, what place does kind of the traditional understanding of Christian hope play in there? Because again, the kind of story I was told in Sunday school was that, yes, the world is broken and suffering now, but we are being prepared and we will one day be taken to, to live in a new creation in which there is, as the Revelation says, no more pain, no more crying, no more bleeding, no more death. Do you want to kind of finesse and nuance that like you have with the kind of just so story of creation and say, actually, it's more complicated than that? Or are we still looking forward to a, a, an ultimate redemption where we don't have any experience of suffering and loss? Well, I think it is plain, certainly from the resurrection, from the revelation accounts, that God's ultimate plan is the abolition of suffering. Although, interestingly, I've also heard it said, you know, that the scars are there. Mm. Jesus when Jesus, uh, the first thing he does when he's, the risen Jesus appears to his disciples, he, sh he shows them his scars. And there's clearly something very profound there, isn't there? That, that yes, Jesus' body is raised, but it carries within itself into eternity the marks of suffering. And, and maybe that's something unique for Christ, but it also maybe that's something that the redeemed creation, the restored creation will carry within it redeemed those marks that because suffering and glory are are intricately linked. I think these are themes we'd like to carry on uh, maybe in our part two mm. uh, and see, and particularly, I think we want to talk more practically about what does this mean for us personally as we're confronted? How can we learn to be mm. more faithful, to, to suffer faithfully uh, and, 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 and discover ways of, 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 of discovering for ourselves the redemptive nature of suffering? Yeah, I think um, that sounds really, really wise. I, I'm really excited for the next part of this conversation. We're going to move on to talk about things like the place of lament in Christian tradition and today as a, as a, as a faithful response to suffering and other things. So look out for that next week. Um, but for now, we'll have to draw, a, draw it to a close. Uh, thanks as ever, John. Thank you for, for you for listening. Um, if, you, if you'd like to get in touch with us, as always, you know how to do it. You just email molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Um, or you can uh, head to John's website, that's johnwyatt.com, where he's got plenty more uh, talks and sermons and book reviews and resources if you want to think more about some of these things we discussed. Um, but until then, uh, we'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. 